Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of incest, sexual abuse, assault, and strong language that some people may find offensive. This episode also includes discussions of sexual violence against children that might be particularly upsetting to some listeners. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. If you are aware of a child who's being abused or neglected, you can report this to the National Child Abuse Hotline, reachable at 1-800-4-A-CHILD, which is 1-800-422-4453. You can also visit childwelfare.gov for state-by-state resources for reporting child abuse or neglect. On November 19, 1957, the newspaper for the University of Maryland, College Park, released a column praising one of their students, Max Schulman, for a speech given at the Associated Collegiate Press Convention. The talk purported that the matriarchy must be destroyed, and Schulman suggested that violence against women would reinvigorate America's youth. At the time, the school was deeply entrenched in traditional values and gender stereotypes. Men were the thinkers, while women were the wives and homemakers. But one student spoke out against this. 21-year-old Valerie Solanus wrote a scathing response, sarcastically tearing his argument apart and speaking out in defense of her fellow female classmates. She wrote, The third-rate Philip Wileyism spewed forth by Schulman was little more than a senseless, unsubstantiated attack upon women. His statements are pure, bigoted drivel. Valerie's article sparked mass outrage. For the next two months, letters to the editor came pouring in, mainly in defense of Shulman's patriarchal stance. Valerie wrote a response each time, with every letter more inflamed than the last. 
in an especially memorable one, she wrote, The pen is mightier than the sword, and my pen is dipped in blood. The newspaper's editorial staff forcibly ended the so-called War of Pens, refusing to publish any more letters. But the conflict earned Valerie a new reputation on campus as Maryland's own little suffragette. And in just a few short years, her writing would once again come to be associated with blood. But this time, it wasn't limited to the page. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Female Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This week, we're discussing Valerie Solanus, a radical feminist, writer, and attempted murderer. We'll learn how she overcame a childhood of poverty and sexual abuse to put herself through college. We'll also explore how this intelligent, witty woman became obsessed with overthrowing the patriarchy by any means necessary. Next week, we'll explain how Valerie Solanas met Andy Warhol and how she attempted to use his money and connections to further her radical ideals. We'll hear how she shot and nearly killed the famous artist. Finally, we'll delve into Valerie's life after the shooting and the lasting repercussions of her work. Valerie seemed destined for scandal even before she was born. Her mother, 18-year-old Dorothy Blondo, was already pregnant with Valerie when she married 21-year-old Louis Lou Solanas in 1936. It's unclear whether their marriage was born out of love or necessity. The stigma of having children out of wedlock was still strong when Valerie was born in Ventnor City, New Jersey, on April 9, 1936. Her younger sister, Judith, was born two years later in 1938. But the family wasn't built to last. When Valerie was four, Louis and Dorothy decided to separate, sending their two young daughters to live with their maternal grandparents in Atlantic City. According to Brianne Faw's biography of Valerie, accounts of her childhood personality vary. Some friends remember her as happy, full of energy, charm, and vitality, 
while others recall an aggressive and naughty girl who constantly found herself in trouble. Valerie herself remembered that period as idyllic. Whether or not she was happy, she was certainly intelligent. She could read and write by age six and picked up new ideas easily. She also hated bullies, defending the children who were picked on in the schoolyard. This aggression was unusual for girls Valerie's age, but according to her sister, Judith, Valerie commonly defied gender norms. She refused anything feminine and horsed around like the boys she knew. This may have been because Valerie had an especially close relationship with her father before her parents separated. When the family broke apart and the girls were sent away to their grandparents, Valerie may have felt betrayed and lashed out by pushing boundaries. But two years after the separation, when Valerie was six and Judith was four, their father requested that Valerie start spending Sundays with him. During these visits, according to a 1968 report from two of Valerie's psychologists, he began sexually abusing her. Valerie didn't tell anyone in her family what was really happening, and they could never account for the dramatic changes in her behavior as she grew older. Before we continue with Valerie's psychology, please note that I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. According to a paper released by the American Counseling Association, childhood sexual abuse has been correlated with higher levels of depression, guilt, and shame. Survivors of child abuse are also at a higher risk of engaging in compulsive or inappropriate sexual behaviors and may experience difficulty in establishing interpersonal relationships. By the time her parents officially divorced in 1947, 11-year-old Valerie had transformed into a rebellious adolescent. She and Judith had returned to their mother, who was now living in Virginia, and Valerie made a point of never staying with her father from that point on, preferring Dorothy's home or a friend's couch when necessary. But soon after Dorothy's divorce was finalized, she started dating a piano tuner named Edward Moran, or Red for short. The couple married in 1949, and Red officially moved into the family home. He and Valerie did not get along, and she chafed under his rule. In 1949, when Valerie was 13, Dorothy and Red enrolled her in the Holy Cross Academy in Virginia, hoping that the school would give her some discipline. Instead, Valerie frequently skipped class, eventually running away to stay with a friend in the tri-state area. Next, Dorothy and Red tried public school, but in her time there, Valerie was bullied and often the subject of childish pranks. She had a difficult time making friends with people her age, thanks to her intelligence and provocative behavior, and her defiance of 1950s gender norms continued through her teenage years, while the rest of her female classmates obsessed over crushes and fashion, Valerie spent her time poring over books. She had no interest in the traditional life her classmates yearned for, finding a man, getting married, and having kids, 
and her behavioral issues continued. Finally, Dorothy and Red sent Valerie to a boarding school in the fall of 1950, when Valerie was 14. Her parents ostensibly sent her away because of the difficult time she'd had in other academic settings. But it has also been suggested that the Institute was actually a school for wayward girls, meaning young women who were pregnant out of wedlock. Valerie was expecting when she enrolled in the fall of 1950, and in 1951, she gave birth to a baby girl, Linda Moran. Valerie never told anyone who Linda's father was. It's been suggested that the father might have been Louis, Valerie's dad, or perhaps her stepfather, Red. Whoever the father was, the Moran family wanted to spare Valerie from social ostracism, and they raised Linda as their own daughter. Linda never learned who her father was, and in fact, for the majority of her young life, she believed Valerie was her sister. With her daughter in her parents' care, Valerie was free to settle into life at the boarding school, which provided her with a new understanding of herself. By all accounts, Valerie flourished there. It was the happiest she'd been in years. She excelled academically and began to explore her sexuality in ways that she couldn't have in public school. She developed a crush on a fellow female classmate and realized that she was attracted to women. Later in her life, she would claim that she'd only fallen in love once with a girl from this school. But as happy as Valerie was, she wasn't ready to fully change her ways or stop seeing men altogether. In the summer of 1952, she started dating a sailor who was stationed near Virginia after the Korean War. He was older and married with children, but this didn't stop him from sleeping with 15-year-old Valerie. Before long, she realized she was pregnant again. The sailor refused to take responsibility for the child. Dorothy and Red helped hide Valerie's second pregnancy from the rest of the world and, in private, urged her to give the baby up for adoption. They even found a suitable family that was friends with the father, the Blackwells. They were an older couple who longed for a child of their own. Valerie, who'd already experienced one forced separation from a child, resisted the adoption. But the Morans made a deal with the Blackwell family. They could keep the baby if they helped pay for Valerie's college tuition. The Blackwells accepted the offer happily, and after her son David's birth in the spring of 1953, Valerie handed him over after continued pressure from her parents. To the sailor and to Valerie's family, the pregnancy was a complication to be dealt with, a source of shame and embarrassment. But while the father returned home to his family without any lasting effects, Valerie was the one who had to carry the child, give him away, and watch him grow up in another family. A friend close to Valerie cited this as the turning point for her, the moment when she started hating men and society's double standards towards sex outside of marriage. 
In the 1950s, a single woman having a child out of wedlock was perceived as ruined and would be shamed. Dr. Nancy Kalish, a psychology professor at California State University in Sacramento, noted that many women at the time either had dangerous, illegal abortions or chose to give the baby up for adoption. But often, it wasn't the mother's choice at all, but that of her parents. And in those cases, the young mothers often felt shame, guilt, and a lingering connection to their missing child that they tried to forget. Valerie kept in touch with the Blackwell family for the first four years of her son David's life, suggesting that she wanted some kind of relationship with him. In fact, she might have been perfectly happy raising David herself if it weren't for her parents' interference. But he never knew her as his real mother, and once Valerie left for college, she stopped visiting permanently. Although she'd successfully covered up her scandalous pregnancy, the teenage Valerie was in a dire position. By 16, she'd been kicked out of most academic institutions she enrolled in, gained a reputation for flouting gender norms, and given birth to two children. But while she managed to scrape her way through high school, Valerie was about to learn that adult life was even more unforgiving, and she could get in more trouble than ever before. Up next, Valerie hones her writing skills at her college newspaper, setting her on the path toward militant feminism. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. Despite an adolescence of poverty, sexual abuse, and psychological instability, 18-year-old Valerie Solanus was intelligent and could compete academically when she chose to. She graduated high school in 1954 while living off and on with the Blackwells and working part-time to support herself. She even managed to get a letter of recommendation from her principal. That fall... Valerie entered the University of Maryland, College Park. At the time, the men on campus vastly outnumbered the women, and the university upheld traditional social values, such as the nuclear family and narrow gender roles. Valerie believed in none of those things. She'd always defied norms, preferring pants and jeans to dresses, but she did more than wear slacks. She spoke her mind and defended her fellow women from the men who sought to take advantage of them. She also identified as an out lesbian, which was extremely uncommon for the era. In fact, a year before Valerie enrolled in college, then-President Dwight D. Eisenhower issued Executive Order 10450. This act 
barred LGBTQ people from employment with the federal government and led to the firing of over 5,000 employees suspected of being gay. Needless to say, in this environment, Valerie was the ultimate outsider and lacked friends. She began to garner a reputation for being slightly dangerous. She was so unaccustomed to people's kindness that she took advantage of it whenever she could. She often borrowed money from her classmates or asked them for repeated favors until they broke off the relationship. When that generosity was rescinded, Valerie retaliated against any minor slight. In her freshman year, the story goes she was kicked out of her dorm for fighting with another student living in the hall. For whatever reason, Valerie then moved to an off-campus basement apartment with three women. When one of the roommates offended her, Valerie took her revenge by urinating in her jug of orange juice and returning it to the fridge. After that incident, the university mandated that Valerie seek psychological counseling for her anger management. It didn't stick. She had to move into her own apartment and worked as a cocktail waitress and a sex worker to pay her rent. The latter wasn't an act of desperation, as is the case for some sex workers. As her cousin Robert said, she just enjoyed sex and using sex as a means to an end. Although she frequently flouted conventionality, Valerie was incredibly smart, funny, and independent. She majored in psychology and read constantly. In her free time, she was often found dissecting and debating the concepts she learned about in class. She also started writing for the school newspaper, The Diamondback, in 1956. She started with features, stories about life on campus and events going on throughout the year. But in 1957, when Valerie was 21, she started writing more pointed feminist pieces. Through these articles, she honed the acerbic personality and sharp language that later characterized her writing. One particular exchange gained notoriety among the student body and earned Valerie the nickname Marilyn's Own Suffragette. On November 19, 1957, the editorial staff of the Diamondback wrote a favorable review of a speech given by a student, Max Schulman, at the Associated Collegiate Press Convention. In his opinion, America was at its best when run by restless men, and the way to show a woman who was the boss was to punch the girl you've been going steady with in the nose to leave no confusion. Valerie wrote a fierce note in response, signed by 10 of her female classmates. She called Schulman's piece a senseless, unsubstantiated attack upon women. She wrote, a case in point is his statement that men come home at night too tired to make decisions, so the wife willy-nilly has to. Of course his wife isn't tired. All she did all day was chase after the kids, cook, wash clothes, shop, free scrub floors, etc., while harassed hubby warmed a seat in an air-conditioned office in between coffee breaks but he's too tired to make decisions. Instead of ending the debate, 
Valerie's words only inflamed Shulman's supporters. Harry Walsh, a fellow student, wrote to the newspaper the next week, stating that these females purposefully misunderstood Shulman's speech. Another anonymous writer commented, Women are meant to stay home, and women think they're too good to do housework and try to think. Over the next two months, writers continued sending their opinions into the paper in what became known on campus as the War of Pens. Finally, the editors put an end to the whole affair on January 17, 1958, by declaring it the last issue they would feature the debate in. The exchange awarded Valerie a certain notoriety on campus and even got her a spot on the local radio show. Much like a modern-day advice columnist, both men and women began writing in to ask Valerie questions about dating, romance, marriage, jobs, money, and social etiquette. Valerie answered with the same wit and eloquence that had brought her into the spotlight, and people took her advice to heart. Despite her small claim to fame through her writing, Valerie intended to pursue a career in evolutionary and biological psychology. She graduated from the University of Maryland College Park in 1958 when she was 22 and applied to the master's program at the University of Minnesota. She was accepted. Valerie began the fall of 1958 with high hopes. Unfortunately, the gender inequality she'd already noted in undergrad became even more apparent at the University of Minnesota. She was one of only a handful of women in the master's program, and while the school prided itself on having gender representation on campus, it reserved its research money and job placement resources for the men. Disgusted with the whole system, Valerie lasted less than a year in graduate school. According to reporter Judith Coburn, this was the point at which Valerie understood how the deck was stacked against any female who wanted something other than marriage and motherhood. From the fall of 1959 to the spring of 1960, she hitchhiked and traveled the country, making money however she could. She gave up on her old dreams and sought out a new purpose. It was now clear to her that the world offered little opportunity for professional women. More often than not, they were secretaries and assistants to the men in charge and had to set aside their own dreams in service of their male boss's goals. She didn't want to live that life, but didn't know what else to do with herself in the fall of 1960, 24-year-old Valerie moved back to her home state of New Jersey, where she took classes at a local college and worked part-time as a waitress. She started visiting New York City on the weekends. It was an epicenter for counterculture in the 1960s. New York City was one of the financial capitals of the world, but it was also a haven for writers, artists, poets, filmmakers, and others who disdained the 9-to-5 lifestyle. The city also had a thriving LGBTQ culture. Downtown were a number of gay villages, 
areas that predominantly housed LGBTQ residents. One of the most famous was Greenwich Village. There, for the first time, Valerie found people with similar goals and experiences. Even though she'd identified as a lesbian throughout most of her academic career, Valerie often found herself the sole gay woman in her classes and social circle. But in New York, Valerie was surrounded by like-minded peers who flouted traditional gender norms and fought for their place in a man's world. The weekend visits gave Valerie new purpose, and she quickly decided two things. First, that she would one day live in Greenwich Village. And second, she was going to be a writer. Her sister Judith lived nearby at the time, and Valerie visited her and her husband, Ramon Martinez. Ramon described the period, saying, I loved listening to Valerie. I'd stay up half the night. You didn't talk. You listened to her theories. She read everything. Her thinking was far in advance of everyone. She talked about the mob and how soon they'd control all the information. Nobody was talking about that then. And about men. She had our number. The mob was an imagined group of powerful men who controlled everything. Capitalism, the spread of information, even the social standards that Valerie felt trapped by. This hypothesis was the first inkling of the paranoia that would later come to dominate her life. Years later, psychologists diagnosed Valerie with paranoid schizophrenia, a mental illness specifically categorized by paranoia, delusions of grandeur, and occasionally hallucinations. Interestingly, studies have proven that certain environmental triggers can unlock schizophrenia in older patients, including childhood abuse, social adversity, and hardship, all things Valerie experienced in spades. But wherever Valerie's social theories came from, they were an important part of her worldview. They eventually formed the backbone of a dark, comedic play she started working on around this time, her first piece as a bohemian. Valerie felt like her life was finally coming together. She was writing something that she was passionate about. She was about to move to her dream neighborhood. She found real friends who actually understood her. But she'd soon realize that chasing her dreams wouldn't make her happy, nor could it curb her growing violent impulses. Coming up, Valerie's experiences in Greenwich Village drive her to take drastic action against the privileged men who populated her world. Now, back to the story. Valerie Solanas survived childhood sexual abuse and constant poverty to become an intelligent, articulate writer with a truly acerbic wit. And in the summer of 1962, when she was 26, she finally saved up enough money to move to New York City and fulfill her dream of being a feminist writer. She lived in a woman's residence hotel on the Upper West Side, which was far from her beloved Greenwich Village, but she made up for the distance by getting a job at a coffee shop downtown and spending her free time wandering around the neighborhood. 
Shortly after her move, Valerie wrote her father a postcard saying, I showed my uncompleted play to the director of Sheridan Square Theatre to get an opinion. He said it had a lot of potential and he encouraged me to finish. I hope to finish in a month or two. It actually took Valerie another three years to finally complete a draft of her play titled Up Your Ass. As she worked on the draft, she did what she could to make ends meet. When the coffee shop didn't provide her with enough cash, Valerie returned to panhandling and sex work. The expense and stress of living in New York took its toll on her. She often moved from place to place, crashing on friends' couches when she couldn't afford rent. Studies have shown that poverty and extreme instability can have a serious effect on mental health over time, especially in adults age 26 or older. A report by the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at New York University showed that close to 27% of adults living below the federal poverty line had a mental illness, with 4% of those exhibiting extreme symptoms and suicidal thoughts. Valerie's extended financial hardship may have been another trigger for her worsening mental illness. And her undiagnosed condition seemed to impact her creative process. Her writing took on a more frenetic, biting tone, shaded by the paranoia that colored her own life. For example, in her play, all men were sex-crazed misogynists who were determined to keep women down. While there were certainly a number of men like this in real life, the city was on the brink of the second-wave feminist movement, and women's rights were advancing in an unanticipated fashion. But Valerie still felt driven to write about the world as she saw it. She wrote with a huge, manual typewriter that she brought with her wherever she stayed. And when she didn't have room to store all of her belongings, she often chose the typewriter over other necessities. Then, in 1965, 29-year-old Valerie registered the completed play with the Library of Congress Copyright Office. She set her mind on finding a producer and putting it on stage. This was easier said than done. The play and its characters bore a stark resemblance to her life in Greenwich Village. In her attempt to convey her experiences, Valerie didn't bother masking any of the vulgarity that came with panhandling, sex work, drug use, and the misogyny that she and other women in her profession faced on a daily basis. In fact, the play drew directly from Valerie's own experiences with men. One of the male characters, Russell, tells the others that women, they'll be the destruction of society, becoming more aggressive and competitive every day, creeping slowly but surely into all the men's fields, law, obstetrics, fashion designing. In many ways, his point of view precisely echoed that of Valerie's former classmate, Max Schulman, the infamous instigator of the War of Pens. The play was crass, foul-mouthed, and extremely cynical. 
but it also touched on important issues core to second-wave feminism, such as rape culture, limited promotions in the workplace, the unequal distribution of housework, and the perpetual stereotype of women as wives and mothers. But these kinds of discussions hadn't hit the mainstream yet. Thanks to the play's unflinching and uncompromising viewpoint, Valerie struggled to get it produced or sold. Without money from the play, her financial situation grew dire in 1965. That year, Valerie was kicked out of the Hotel Earl near Washington Square Park for missing payments. She moved to a welfare hotel called the Village Plaza and then to the Chelsea Hotel, an already famous lodging for artists and bohemians. Since opening its doors in 1885, the Chelsea had housed a disproportionate number of celebrities. This may have been because the owner, Stanley Bard, allowed certain tenants to default on their rent for months at a time because he believed they would one day be famous. Perhaps because of Bard's generosity, Valerie found a way to stay in New York City and continued to write and add to her portfolio. She wrote a piece for Cavalier magazine called A Young Girl's Primer, or How to Attain the Leisure Class. It had similar themes to her play and was published in July of 1966. The story was written in first person, and described a day in the life of a lesbian panhandler and sex worker, recounting incidents that, in all likelihood, Valerie herself had experienced while trying to make ends meet. As with Up Your Ass, the young girl's primer clearly laid out Valerie's worldview on gender and male privilege with an acerbic and hilarious tone. In one excerpt, the main character noticed a woman handing out pamphlets for a university lecture, but only to the men passing her on the streets. When the main character asked why, the girl replied, Instinct, I guess. I don't have too many of these, and this lecture's rather intellectual, you know. So I hit those who, well, you know, seem intellectual. Valerie wrote in response, I must admit... I'm impressed. She's been programmed beautifully. The primer showed a clear, personal glimpse into Valerie's sense of despair and disillusionment. In the six years since she dropped out of graduate school, she'd seen little progress for women in the workplace or in society at large. Perhaps it was for this reason that Valerie began working in earnest on her next piece— the Scum Manifesto. S-C-U-M stood for the Society for Cutting Up Men. It was Valerie's radical answer to male privilege. Her proposed solution was to completely overthrow the patriarchy. By the time Valerie's manifesto was completed, second-wave feminism was in full swing. Instead of facing immediate derision, Valerie's ideas started to gain some traction. She had a willing audience for the first time. But her success would be short-lived. A lifetime of rejection, poverty, and undiagnosed mental illness had made Valerie more volatile and dangerous than ever. 
she was determined to make the world listen to what she had to say, convinced that her point of view was the only way for women to move forward. She was so focused on advancing her ideals, she neglected her own deteriorating mental state. She began behaving more erratically and violently, and she was only months away from attempting murder. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with part two of Valerie Solanus's story. We'll explore how Valerie befriended artist Andy Warhol and why her distrust of the world at large deepened until eventually Valerie turned on her one-time friend, nearly killing him. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Female Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Female Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram, at ParCast, and Twitter, at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Carly Madden. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Liz Doravitsen, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Vanessa Richardson.